This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. The next Malaysian general election will see over 1 million new voters aged between 18 to 20 years old become first-time voters, thanks to the Undi 18 constitutional amendment that was passed three years ago. With this cohort comes a host of opportunities for political parties to increase their outreach and awareness, but also heightened risks for misinformation and disinformation to spread among the broader population. So a new study by the Asia Centre in collaboration with Google unpacks some of the issues surrounding youth and disinformation in Malaysia. Regional Director James Gomez joins me today to discuss some of the findings. James, good morning. Uh, Good morning and thanks for having me at BFM. Before we go into the specifics of youth and disinformation, it may be useful uh, to understand what amounts to disinformation, whether there's a consensus on the definition, um, whether in academic circles or political circles. So how is this defined in the study and in general? When we look at fake news, you know, um, there is broadly sort of three categories, uh, disinformation. Now, disinformation is the one that we are talking about where, um, you know, false information is willfully uh, created for a particular purpose to deceive and to manipulate, you know, uh, the receiver's action. Uh, We are in election season, so obviously we are looking at election manipulation, but it can be other forms of actions that we want uh, to get out of the audience uh, who uh, receive uh, uh, false content that we have curated Mm. in order to uh, mislead them and, and mislead their action. Uh, this is different from mal and misinformation. Uh, mal information is really, you know, um, pure accident, you mm-hmm. know, error, mistake, uh, no ill intention or, or, or agenda-driven type uh, situation. Misinformation is really withholding the facts. So that means that you only provide one-sided information. Uh, about someone. Uh, traditionally, you know, um, this is a technique used in negative campaigning mm. uh, where you will just share, you know, uh, uh, 5% of the truth uh, in uh, which, which casts somebody in a negative way uh, and then withhold the 95% that would negate or, you know, uh, or, or create a different type of perception. So that's uh, broadly it. So there are nuances between misinformation and disinformation. And I'm curious about whether political circles acknowledge um, these distinctions and these types of communication, because I wouldn't be surprised if there are groups that say, oh, you know, this is just fair play. We're just trying to garner support, trying to persuade people. Um, Do you see that happening? You know, if you are motivated to mobilize people, uh, of course, it's election season and our attention is on political parties. But the others who mobilize people for action and policy advocacy are also civil society groups. So they are interested in communicating a particular view uh, to mobilize people for action, usually to sort of pressure and, you know, try to result in policy change. Mm. Um, But I think... The move to have a quick fix, uh, what works, uh, is that uh, many communicators, professionals, PR people, you know, find it uh, most, you know, economical and efficient uh, to stir emotion through fake news. And because it's 
so easy to get a reaction and an influence behavior uh, in a large scale. Uh, That's why they choose the route of uh, fake news and disinformation as a very, very uh, handy tool. Mm. So for them, it's very uh, functional and it's just a means to an end. Now, political disinformation isn't a new phenomenon, as you lay out in your study. It's been happening all this while, really. And the study chronicled the prevalence of this in Malaysia's election history. How would you say public disinformation during elections has evolved over the years? And why is this becoming a critical issue, particularly now in the Internet age? The types of disinformation, you know, that's unique to a particular society, and in this case, uh, Malaysia, Uh, tend to be fairly constant, but the method of disinformation has evolved with changes in communication technology. Mm. So what we see is we have fake news being, uh, you know, disseminated first through print, then later through text or SMS. Then we had the whole website blog era, and then we've gone to social media and then to messaging apps. So that's the technological evolution of the platform over which fake news has been, you know, sort of pushed out. But the patterns of disinformation remain the same, uh, and they've been consistent throughout the last five elections. And and we've looked at the last five elections simply because the uh, internet was introduced in Malaysia in the mid-90s. So we wanted to kind of, you know, just uh, ride on the technological change wave, so to speak. So uh, the five categories of, you know, uh, disinformation in Malaysian politics, both in between and during elections, are uh, a person's sexual orientation or sexual promiscuity. Uh, that, that's used quite largely. Uh, corruption, corruption allegations, uh, foreign interference uh, allegations, attacking women uh, politicians, and also questioning and harming the electoral integrity and process of choosing, you know, candidates and representatives. So these have been constant. If I will have to pick one, I would rank corruption allegations as making uh, the biggest splash or the largest volume of this uh, information simply because of the currency uh, of that particular uh, variable in the news Mm -hmm. and being played out in the courts. So that's kind of key. There are other types of disinformation, um, you know, that comes up time to time. Uh, The two that I can, uh, you know, uh, uh, mention is uh, ideas of betrayal. Someone, you know, or he or she has betrayed the community, the political party, the country. That's a kind of a theme that comes out. And also uh, identity politics based on uh, race or religion also comes out. But they are not consistent throughout the last five elections uh, because sometimes they tend to be folded in into the five major recurring patterns of disinformation that the report has outlined. uh, And they feature more strongly. I just wanted to um, maybe dig a little deeper on the point that you mentioned about how corruption might be a theme that uh, we could expect to come up more often in this election cycle, just given the current headlines. What does that mean? Does that mean that more people could be accused of corruption or is it more of denials of corruption? How would that disinformation come about? 
Yeah, to understand how it operates, I think we will have to unpack the drivers of this information. Mm. Uh, again, uh, the report identifies three tiers. So the top tier really involves three personas, the top tier, uh, government agencies, uh, political parties, and people responsible or appointed at the top level to come up with the communication strategies. Now, they could be from within the first two types of organizations, or they could be an independent hire. And these are validated through evidence. Um, so I can point to an Oxford Internet Institute report, which at early as 2008 has already identified both government agencies and political parties as initiating and contributing to the construction and dissemination of disinformation. And, and that's good, 14 years ago. So let's fast forward to just this year. You know, uh, we have this uh, taking down of Facebook pages by Meta over accusation that the uh, royal uh, police force uh, was involved in actually spinning stories about corruption uh, from figures in government. So just, you know, 12, 15 years apart, you have that consistent evidence that government agencies... So I just wanted to validate that our report is based on facts, uh, looking at past studies, but also validated by people who are close to the sources. Uh, so they are the first tier, and, you know, nobody is innocent. Everybody uh, plays both sides uh, of the coin, and, and so we will have to call it out as and when we see it. So that's the initiator. And often these people uh, will try to hang back so they have plausible uh, deniability. So that's why we come to the middle level. So these are the ones who then will take the budget and the objective and try to operationalize it. They'll come up with a strategy, you know, perhaps develop tiles, infographics, uh, craft messages, and come up with a plan. So that's the middle tier. They could be companies, usually PR companies and so on. Then we come to the third tier, which essentially is the, the disseminators, right? Mm -hmm. They can be paid. Uh, they are mostly individual contractors. They set up fake accounts, this, that, and the other, and they just push out. Uh, they could also be volunteers coming out from partisan, you know, NGOs or grassroots group. Uh, and then, you know, individual diehards. Um, who have bought into the, the ideology of a particular figure or a political party, you know, whatever the case might be. So those are the three tiers, what we call the drivers of disinformation. So coming back to these elections, how much the allegations will be pushed out will be dependent on how these three categories work, who commissions them and so on. And if we zoom out and reflect on the Malaysian case, it is this aspect of the whole disinformation ecosystem that is still fairly opaque. Now, this is very different uh, from the Philippines, mm -hmm. where it has been kind of torn apart. There have been, you know, many investigative stories, you know, articles in tags, major news channels have done videos documenting this. I think this is a serious problem in Malaysia. It remains opaque because, you know, we have a culture here where we don't speak directly. When we speak about these things, you know, we don't provide details. We, we, we speak in hush voices. It's very, you know, secretive. If we can provide more transparency, spotlight, more investigation, mm -hmm. and, and here is a shout out to academics who work in this area, uh, journalists uh, who have capacity to do investigative stories, I think part of 
you know, the defense towards disinformation uh, can be also, you know, unpacked from this front if we know more, right? Uh, I would see uh, Asia Center study at this stage uh, as, you know, taking a pioneering approach in, in sort of, you know, collating this dimension, the drivers of disinformation. Mm -hmm. And we hope that, you know, it's a good start uh, for others to build on. So if I surmise correctly, what the study is putting forth is that political disinformation is coming from state bodies. It's kind of I want open. to say that state bodies are a player. And we cannot discount because, you know, the assumption is state bodies tell the truth. Now, uh, Asia Center's work is not only focused on Malaysia. We do similar studies across the region, both thematically, and we've done studies in Myanmar, Cambodia, Thailand. It's a recurring pattern we observe in other states that the state agencies also engages in disinformation, and that's the point. Hmm. So for Malaysia, we just want to create an awareness to ask Malaysians and other people who watch Malaysian current affairs to open up and absorb that state players, you know, whether willingly, unwillingly, knowingly or unknowingly, do contribute to the disinformation content out there. Mm. And that is something that we need to be cognizant of. I'm speaking to James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre, on patterns of disinformation during the election cycle. What measures should be taken to mitigate the fallout from political disinformation? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana, and with me today is James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre. We're discussing findings from a recent study published by the Asia Center in collaboration with Google, looking at youth and disinformation and how to improve electoral integrity. Now, coming to the issue of youth voters and disinformation, how susceptible are youth voters to disinformation and manipulation in this digital age, which I think we spoke about earlier, is really the internet that's sort of driving the spread of it so much quicker than it did before. We know that the young, they're digital natives, they grew up with all these gadgets and social media platforms, one might think they would actually be more savvy to the ways in which information can be doctored online. Um, what do you think? I think there's self-perception from the youth. And then I think for those of us who are analysts, you know, at Asia Center, we, we come at it from a point of developing tools for media literacy. That's where we are coming from. So we need to know the landscape before we can roll out, you know, training programs and curriculum to, to combat disinformation. So our conversation with youth, and again, not unique to, to Malaysia, but uh, Southeast Asia, they will tell you that they know the truth and they are very cognizant of disinformation. But the reality is when we look at the drivers of disinformation and their motivations, when they roll out disinformation, they do it to disinform everyone. So they are not sitting down in the, uh, in the sort of devil's workshop and crafting special disinformation messages only to disinform and uh, dissuade or persuade the young. For them, that's not cost effective and, and it's not fast. Mm -hmm. So for, for the Malaysian approach, uh, because it's election season, you know, we will expect to see disinformation rolled out. Uh, for everyone, at one go, one content, one message, so that we can turn everyone. 
However, uh, we could see or uh, make an assumption because of the demographics that content will also be rolled out, let's say, on TikTok, um, perhaps on WhatsApp. Uh, and and uh, the, the statistics show um, young people, you know, um, spend a lot more time on that. In fact, less so on Facebook. It's, it's really the older generation of Facebook. Uh, so, yeah, if you do want to get out to the young, uh, then you're going to be on TikTok. And TikTok is fairly active also here in Malaysia. So how robust is Malaysia's legal framework to combat disinformation as it stands? I mean, Malaysia has a host of laws that actually suppress freedom of expression and information sharing. Does this then have the counterintuitive effect of actually feeding disinformation cycles? Because laws themselves are not enough to deal with disinformation. The more effective approach for Malaysia, and I think that's where I think uh, the country has you know, good potential to strengthen, is the non-legal measures, such as fact-checking, quality journalism, and of course, the key thing, media literacy. There were some things rolled out in 2018 in the run-up to the elections, but they were often seen as one-sided because they did not have other stakeholder or community involvement to balance. So they came out being perceived as uh, biased and one-sided pro-government of that time. Now, if we can remedy that and we can take a more inclusive community as well as technology company buy-in, I think we can have a more robust media literacy ecosystem. And I think that's what Malaysia needs to kind of develop. So we need to have a short-term and medium-term strategy. So I think here the election commission is important that I think it needs to set up some kind of uh, fact-checking centre and anything to do with elections. I think it needs to be seen as a source for verified information about electoral process because the electoral inter integrity and processes is a one recurring pattern that gets hit quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it should have, you know, also the support and buy-in of, you know, election watch NGOs and things like that. Mm -hmm. so, so there's more legitimacy. Secondly, I think we should have some kind of undertaking for people participating in elections, whether it's representatives of political parties or individual candidates and so on, to get some kind of commitment that they will not engage in the use of disinformation for campaign process. The mid to long term, I think really we are looking at education institutions across the age groups, uh, because I think you know, by the time you just go to tertiary institutions, it's a bit too late. I think you have to start them very young. And there has to be a national process. Uh, Taiwan has rolled out, you know, a national curriculum for media literacy. Some of the other countries are also looking at it. Mm. Uh, so I think um, Malaysia is in a good shape to consider a national media literacy curriculum. Uh, not just in the, um, you know, education institution, but I think we also need to have something on, on the community. And then uh, the other thing that we encourage is also the whole idea of media ethics. Because media literacy comes after the fact. I mean, the content has been produced. So we are teaching people how to navigate. But it'll be even better if we can already ensure the content that is produced is produced truthfully 
And here, I think media ethics is important. So we really need to acknowledge that it's not just a one-off. It's not just for these elections, but it's for future elections yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And we need to get those institutions in place. These are all actions that uh, the community and society as a whole can take. But on the individual level, as we gear up for the elections, whether they're in the coming month or maybe next year, what should individual voters do across all age groups, whether young or old? How can they better, uh, I guess, safeguard against falling prey to disinformation? I would still say if the word can get out that evidence points to these five you know, key recurring forms of disinformation, sexual orientation and promiscuity, corruption allegations, uh, attacks on women politicians, electoral integrity and foreign interference, if they can pay you know, a second look. Okay. To discern, discern from especially these key features, I think that would be a good step forward um, so they can recognize that quickly. And hopefully, you know, uh, that will allow them to make uh, informed decision. Okay. If ever you come across any of those five issues and it creates an emotive response, maybe just take a step back, take a breath. Uh, and give yourself some time to to think mm. about it before going into any actions yeah. or uh, before sharing it. Yeah, so as we say, kalau tak pasti, jangan share. Indeed, James, thank you so much for the conversation today and we look forward to speaking to you further as elections unfold. Thank you. I've been speaking to James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre. This has been Pressing Matters on The Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. news bulletin, and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.